welcome, or indeed welcome back. If you listen to the first of these podcasts, this is podcast number two from Dex Phoenix from the Flames. And hello. Um, This is actually being recorded on Christmas Eve, uh, although probably by the time you listen to it will be uh, after Christmas, maybe even much, much later indeed. But uh, I'm feeling a little bit Christmassy for this one, although the subject is, uh, well, we do touch on Christmas a couple of times, but it's it's really anything but Christmas. In fact, uh, we travel through the seasons in many ways, and we also travel around the world somewhat as well. Last time, if you were listening, you'll know that the... The flames that I emerged phoenix-like from was the trauma of the death of my mother, after which I burnt my suit, literally, uh, and had a big change of direction and became a motorcycle instructor, uh, which went on to me uh, starting my own business uh, with my wife as a motorcycle training school business. When I was originally a motorcycle instructor, I worked for another training school, and one of the issues they had was whether they'd have enough work through the winter for me. And the solution that we came up with was for myself and my wife to go backpacking around the world during the winter time. It worked out well both ways. We wanted to travel and they really didn't have the money to pay us through winter, didn't have enough business. So with a thousand pound round the world ticket, uh, which you could get back then, a borrowed rucksack and the first week or so booked in um, Singapore and uh, Bali, I seem to remember, And after that, just a copy of the Lonely Planet Guide and a vague idea of where we were going to go, we set off. So to begin with, we flew to Singapore, where we had a lovely hotel and a rooftop pool. It was all very much like a holiday rather than backpacking. And then on to Bali with a hotel on the beach and uh, three square meals a day, swimming pool, all the rest of it. And then we landed in Perth in Western Australia with... Really, as I said, nothing but the, the Lonely Planet Guide and a, a kind of vague idea and a, and a few Australian dollars to us. And I remember getting to customs there and, uh, and queuing up, you know, one by one as you do to go through passport control. And um, the lady there asking, you know, where, what, you know, what was the purpose of my visit? And, you know, how long was I staying for? And where was I going to be staying? And I was very nervous they wouldn't let us in. So I, I made a big point of the fact that we, we'd got some money and, um, uh, and we hadn't actually got anywhere to stay yet. But, you know, we got some ideas and... And um, she looked at me sort of ruefully and went, ah, oh, don't sweat it, you'll find somewhere. And, and sure enough, we did. Uh, we emerged the other side of, of passport control uh, to a kind of library, if you like, of leaflets about different backpacker uh, hostels and so forth. And we met one of those people that Bill Bryson wrote about in, uh, if you've ever read his book in a sunburned country, which I would recommend, it's hilarious. He talked about a tendency among men of a certain age to wear knee-high socks with shorts. And there was one of those there. It was a, it was a chap who was lovely. It was, it was a tan safari shirt and uh, matching shorts and then white knee-high socks, just the most odd, but really lovely. And, you know, directed us to, you know, hostels in the area and that sort of thing. It was fabulous. And we spent about two months in that wonderful country. I I love Australia and uh, fully intend to get back there. If you haven't had a chance to go there and you get one, uh, grab it with both hands. Highlights of our time there. We spent three days on the Indian Pacific train from Perth to Adelaide. That's something like 2,700 kilometres or 1,600 miles or so across the the Nullarbor Desert. It was great, but horrendous as well, because we could only afford the red kangaroo class, and you don't get a cabin, you get a seat, which reclines a bit, 
but the seat in front is so low to the ground that you can't actually stretch your feet out properly without basically lacerating your ankles. So very, very uncomfortable. I ended up sleeping in the uh, the buffet car <laughs> and being woken up at like six in the morning by the by the people wanting to set the tables up. But absolutely fabulous. Um, we spent a couple of weeks in Sydney staying with some friends, trekking in the Blue Mountains, catching a, an Australian rules football match, although there didn't appear to be many rules. Uh, we watched a show at the the famous opera house we had a a, a jelly legged climb over the sydney harbour bridge as well we bought a holden which is like a voxel (laughs) and uh, traveled up the east coast to cairns with all the expected sort of inevitable breakdowns and so forth on the way other highlights we saw world superbikes at phillip island uh, with horizontal freezing rain straight from Antarctica, and we spent three days in Kakadu National Park at the uh, in the top end of Australia, which was amazing. But three days of walking and rough camping with no showers was interesting in a land cruiser with nine of us. But I guess we all smelled as bad as each other, so we didn't really notice. And all through this, I was travelling with my wife, who was also my best friend. It was, you know, it was fantastic. Um, we were on a budget. Uh, we'd got a bit of savings, which we'd blown on, on the trip, but it was, a, it was the trip of a lifetime and we hoped the first of many. And she was the driving force behind us actually taking the plunge and doing the trip. You know, she was the one who grabbed life by the scruff of the neck and wanted to experience as much of it as possible. And then we went on to New Zealand and discovered the, the rugged beauty and strange lack of life that is New Zealand, particularly in the Southern Island, and met with some distant family and had a, a great sort of time finding a bit of culture in Rotorua with the hot sulphur springs which smell like bad eggs and the Maori culture. And so on to Fiji for the honeymoon we never had. We got married in our early 20s and we didn't have a lot of money at the time. The The asset we had was the fact I had a company car and they played for private fuel. So uh, we actually went camping in Bogner Regis of all places. If you're in the US and you don't know where Bogner Regis is, it's a, it's a, how can I be polite to Bogner Regis? It's all right. It's, it's a holiday seaside town. But it wouldn't be top of your list for your fantasy honeymoon. So Fiji felt like the kind of honeymoon we didn't have. And it was amazing. And in fact, the only package left for us to purchase for this particular island was the honeymoon package, which was lovely. It wasn't particularly expensive, I seem to remember. And, you know, we flew there from New Zealand. We transferred from the main island on a catamaran, which I still remember, called the Sour Flyer. And then you get in a small sort of motorboat, uh, which takes you to the island and then you have to hold your luggage above your head and wade through the water into the sort of uh, the camp and absolutely amazing and um you're greeted by you know these wonderful people there are sort of half a dozen maybe thatched huts on the beach called burays which are traditional fijian uh, houses um, very simple absolutely beautiful and right on the beach beach was protected by a reef so you know really no no big waves or anything perfect for snorkeling no sharks or whatever and just the most just the most amazing place and really interesting because um each night you had a communal meal there were maybe a dozen of us on the on the, on the island as well as the staff of course probably less than that actually i'm thinking back there must have been only about eight of us but anyway yeah we, we'd all sort of eat communally and the and there was sort of really no choice of food but it but it was it was wonderful every night there'd be one couple missing from the communal meal and that was because 
if you're on a honeymoon package, you get a, a special meal from memory. I think it was lobster. But it's served separately quite a way along the beach, you know, in a sort of pseudo-romantic sort of way, which is a lovely thought. Turned out, actually, that, that everybody was on the honeymoon package. In fact, I don't think they had any other package. So every evening, different couple would be served down the beach. Anyway... Our turn came and we were led along the beach by the, the waitress where this little table had been set up for us and uh, it was beautiful, all right? It was uh, quite difficult to see. There was sort of a, a candle there. But it was getting dark and, you know, just sort of eating your food in the dark, really. And you feel like you're missing out a little bit because you can hear the kind of laughter from the group back in the, in the main camp, all eating communally, you know, sort of that laughter sort of wafting along the beach. But but nevertheless, we thought, well, this is lovely. And... Um, the waitress reappeared with our with our food and set them down in front of us. But you see, it's quite a long walk from from the table to the kitchen. And so, I mean, quite understandably, this young waitress thought, I don't want to walk all the way back to the kitchen, only to have to come all the way back here to get their dirty plates. So she settled down next to us, sat in <laughs> sat on the beach in the sand, and well, it was a bit Oh, it was fine, but it was a little bit awkward, right? She basically watched us eat our romantic meal. <laughs> and, yeah, more disconcerting than romantic, I suppose. But anyway, um, luckily, we weren't on honeymoon. You know, we'd at that point been married for about 12 years. So the the hardest thing, really, was not laughing while she was there. We were sort of stifling our, our childish giggles until she was out of hearing distance when we could have a good old laugh about it. Anyway, another part of the honeymoon in inverted commas, package, uh, involved one couple each day being marooned, if you like, in inverted commas, on a deserted island. So, um, you know, lovely idea. So anyway, our turn came, and um, they put you in this little sort of open fishing boat, really tiny little boat with a little putt-putt engine, and they putt-putt-putt you across uh, the bay, across around around the headland to this deserted island. And they provide you with a basket of fruit and pastries and, you know, lunch, basically. So we arrive at this deserted island and you wade ashore from the boat, much like we'd done when we first arrived. And off the boat goes, going to return in about three hours. And, well, it was lovely, you know, this time properly romantic right it's just us and this beautiful sand and the waves lapping on the shore and this beautiful warm sun so we ate the lunch they provided and in the warm embrace of the sun you know one thing led to another and we started to get somewhat amorous as you as you might do a short way into this special time i spotted some people walking up the beach towards us so we quickly sort of sorted out our attire and as they got closer and greeted us with a cheery wave, it, it turned out they were from another village and they decided to go beachcombing on that particular island that particular day. And they shared their names with us. They were Chocker and Wulu, I remember this to this day. And they were very polite and very lovely and insisted on staying with us to keep us company until the boat arrived to take us back to our camp. Again, fortunately, we were able to laugh about it because... Thankfully, we're only sort of playing at being on honeymoon. Anyway, our trip around the world ended a bit early as we run low on funds. We had just enough time for three days in Los Angeles and three in New York, the latter of which I particularly loved, by the way. Just like every movie you've ever seen, if you've not been to New York City, 
even if you don't think it's your sort of place, it's one, one, of, one of my favourite places on earth and I, I hope to get back there. It's, it's a relatively short flight from London, so uh, that is likely to happen at some point. But it, it was it was wonderful, you know, honking fire engines and yellow taxis and policemen on every corner and bagels and, you know, Macy's and Empire State Building and Staten Island Ferry and Statue of Liberty. Just amazing. Anyway, we got back to reality. We returned to work and the following year started our motorcycle training school. The year after that, we had our first child and our second came along about 18 months after that. And the business was going very well. We'd grown from just me instructing to a couple of additional full-time instructors and several part-timers. Uh, we built a bit of a reputation locally, I think, and had a sort of a medium-sized following on Facebook. We had monthly social rideouts, which usually had between 12 and 40 riders turning up. So, you know, not huge, but not bad. Then my wife found out that she had cancer, breast cancer. I remember her phoning me to tell me the news and apologising. The C word is a, is a big scary thing that brings with it all sorts of nightmare thoughts. But in the ensuing weeks, things started to look less bleak. The oncologist said that we'd diagnosed it early, which was good news. And that it was oestrogen receptor positive, also apparently good news. And that the survival rate was in the high 90%. And so, as many couples are probably doing right now, and have done in the past, we lived with it. You know, we got on with our daily lives and the, the business of running a business and looking after our small children. And my wife had chemotherapy and then radiotherapy, trying to chase down the cancer. And eventually, uh, as extreme was having a mastectomy. All the while, we remained as positive as we could and didn't really tell anyone outside of immediate family and, and close friends. And after all, you don't want to have something like that define you. You've just got to get on with it. Then, on November the 5th, 2013, I received a phone call from her that neither of us were ready for. She'd gone to a routine oncology appointment with her mum whilst I was working, not expecting anything different than all the other appointments she'd had previously. But this time, the news was very different. Despite their best efforts, the cancer had spread. It was now inoperable and terminal. Again, incredibly, I remember her apologising to me for giving me the news. This amazing, inspiring and downright good person was going to die. And I know we're all going to die, but was going to die too soon. Now, medical professionals, unlike in the movies with the whole you've got six months to live thing, don't really like to give their take on how long they expect you to live for. And I can understand that. But it isn't very helpful. We pushed and we were told it could be a year, it could be 20 years. In the end, it was less than a year. After some complications, she died with me holding her hand in our local hospice on October the 1st, the following year. But not before we'd managed to sell the business, have a fantastic 20th wedding anniversary party in which she wore her original wedding dress altered with purple silk, which was her favourite colour, and somehow summoning the energy to be fantastic and radiant that day, surrounded by our family and friends. She died just six weeks later. Since then, whenever I have something difficult I have to deal with, 
perhaps at work or in study or whatever, I take strength from the fact that it will never be as difficult as telling our two children who were then aged four and six that we need to go to the hospice to say goodbye to mummy as she was going to die soon. We'd kept the seriousness of her illness from them, not because we felt they needed to be shielded, but because there were so many unknowns for so long. I mean, how do you explain to a six-year-old something you don't really know yourself? How do you tell them that, you know, mummy's going to die, but it might be a few months, it might be next year, it, it could be 20 years, when they've not even been around for a quarter of that time themselves? At the funeral, I could see all eyes on them, and it is sad when a parent dies. And people do feel for the children. And actually, they tend to feel for the children if the children are particularly young. The thing is, children are amazing. They were both smiling and enjoying the fact that there were lots of friends and family there. And I think others took strength from that. I know I did. And then, exactly a year after her death, on the 1st of October... I found myself sitting down in a lecture theatre with around 300 others for the first ever lecture at my university degree course. And I remember smiling inwardly at the wonderful symmetry of that and that I was the first of my family ever to make it to uni, only about 30 years after most of my peers had done so. The irony was that we discussed me doing a university degree while she was still alive, but we couldn't afford it. And now, thanks partly to her death, I was able to go. Now a single parent, of course, I managed with the help of the breakfast and after-school clubs that thankfully their primary school ran. That gave me from 8am to 6pm each weekday to travel to campus, attend lectures and seminars, study, write essays, take exams and so on, and get back to collect them and do all the parenting stuff. I still remember the first seminar. (laughs) When I arrived... Most of the class were crowded outside the seminar room, waiting for the academic to turn up. And when they saw me, clearly 20 or 30 years older than the average age, they parted. And and I remember someone holding the door open for me. It's my eternal regret that I didn't have the foresight and bravery to adopt the pretense of being their seminar leader. Because that could have been so much fun for a few minutes, you know making up imaginary rules, getting them to hand over their phones and so forth. But I was a bit too shy, I think. So I sort of sheepishly informed them that actually, despite looking like this, I was a student just like them. Of course, the truth is that, although I was indeed a student, I was not exactly like them. I had shirts older than some of them. And so to begin with, university was difficult Not the work, the social isolation. Everybody around me seemed to have friends. Everybody seemed to know lots of other peoples. In the cafes and the shops and the coffee shops, they talked loudly and excitedly in groups while I sipped my cappuccino on my own and read my textbook. It took me about three weeks until I discovered the misnomer that was the Mature Student Society. Misnomer because they were anything but mature mentally. Finally, I had some folk to hang out with. Aged from mid-twenties to 70-plus, and misfits, all of them, they were a wonderful ragtag lot, and we had a lot of fun, mostly involving parties and pub crawls and the yearly favourite, 
that was Christmas Jumper Drinks. However, this podcast has now nearly reached 20 minutes, and I don't really want to go much over that, so I'm going to have to split this between this story between this podcast and the one I do in two weeks' time. So there is more, much more, uh, about university, uh, whether it will fill a whole another podcast, I don't know, um, but certainly there's... There's more than I want to fit into the end of this one. And it is nearly Christmas here at the moment in the Dex household. So I will wrap up here, say a big thank you if you've managed to get this far through it. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Have a lovely holiday season. Have a cool Yule and a festive break. And I will return in two weeks. See you on the other side. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.